Hopefully, you'll never need any of the advice you, you learned from uh, uh, Dr. High, or you'll never be exposed to, to, uh, to a situation uh, so unpleasant. But it's very likely that in your professional life, you will uh, end up seeing patients with uh, cutaneous uh, lymphoma. So let's go, let's do like a quick overview of, of cutaneous lymphomas. And uh, the complexity of cutaneous lymphoma has increased enormously in the, in the last few years. As we learn more about the skin immune system, uh, uh, for instance, now we know that there are more lymphocytes uh, living in the skin in a homeostatic way than in the blood. So there's a huge population of cells, of T cells and B cells in the skin in normal circumstances. So all those subsets of cells can take a malignant turn. And uh, that's why we have so many different subtypes of cutaneous lymphomas. The vast majority of them, about 70% of them, are of the T cell type. About 30% are B cell, which again reflects the, the, the population of lymphocytes in the skin. Also, in the last 30 years or so, we have witnessed uh, a huge increase in the incidence of cutaneous T-cell lymphomas, um, which in a way parallels uh, what happens also with atopic dermatitis. So there may be some environmental factors that explain this huge increase. Sounds like in the last few years we are reaching a plateau. But uh, again, so many patients that we are seeing lately, the good news is that there is a steady improvement in survival. So we do have uh, better therapies. Uh, we are more accurate at making the early diagnosis. And as a result, our patients are, are, are doing better. So let's talk about mycosis fungoides as the prototype of cutaneous T-cell lymphomas. This is the one that you will more likely uh, see in your practice. Uh, more commonly seen in men than women, uh, in African-Americans than other races. The typical presentation uh, is with ill-defined, what we call poikilodermatous, slightly scaly, erythematous, uh, almost like, uh, like cigarette paper atrophic patches in the borax. This uh, is a picture that once you see one, uh, you do the biopsy to confirm, but this is practically 100% sure uh, to be mycosis fungoides usually in non-sun exposed areas. But again, there are many exceptions in cutaneous lymphomas. Uh, by now, you may know that the diagnosis of, uh, of mycosis fungoides is uh, difficult. You'll see how uh, it often, uh, the diagnosis of mycosis fungoides is often included in the differential diagnosis of many eczematous conditions. Patients with MF, take an average of more than six years to be diagnosed. Why so? Uh, this is, this is uh, histopathologically section shows you why. In an early uh, biopsy of mycosis fungoides, you have, relatively speaking, few tumor cells which are in the intraepidermal compartment with many reactive uh, T cells. So most of the T cell infiltrate in early MF, which is a highly immunogenic lymphoma, are benign. Therefore, it takes time, it takes expertise to identify the tumor cells. As, we, as the patient evolves, uh, the lesions become uh, thicker and uh, the percentage of malignant cells is much more 
uh, prominent. So here we see the natural evolution of mycosis fungoides. We go from those thin uh, patches to a plaque. So it, it, uh, it acquires a more consistency and more, uh, more redness. We know that as we, uh, as we go from a patch to a plaque to a tumor lesions, there is an acceleration of the process. We know that the tumor cells acquire more uh, gen uh, genetic events that make them more aggressive. And as we advance, the duration of each uh, phase uh, becomes shorter and shorter. So it's always, um, it's always uh, important to follow those patients and look for the tumor uh, transformation. So here we go from patch to plaque. The patient has finally uh, reached the, the tumor stage. So what happens under the microscope in the tumor stage? The T cells do not require the environment of the intrapidermal uh, uh, keratinocytes. Early on in MF, the cells require antigen-presenting cells, Langerhans cells to provide signals, all these microenvironment of benign cells. As they become more aggressive, they grow independently. They do not need the signaling of the Langerhans cells. They, they do not need the intrapidermal environment, and they grow rapidly in the dermis. Often there is large cell transformation, which is also a sign of aggressiveness, and often you start seeing a lot of mitotic uh, figures there. Now, having said that, so I explained to you the natural course of mycosis fungoides, but patients do not read textbooks. So more often than not, you'll find patients with a patch stage that go on for many years. They never evolve into anything, or the contrary. This is a patient, a 92-year-old patient, who came to see me with a biopsy typical mycosis fungoides. The patient had had this lesion for many, many years, and he did not come to see us until he had urine incontinence, he was wearing diapers, and the MF patch became irritated. So he was never, never bothered by it until uh, a secondary irritation occurred there. Just to pr prove the point that, you know, many of those patients will do fine. At the opposite end of the spectrum, here we have a patient who presents day one with a quick onset of erythroderma. The patient had uh, abnormal uh, circulating cells. So uh, it could be extremely indolent, it could be extremely aggressive, uh, even at the time of uh, presentation. Um, we now know that T cells have high plasticity depending on the, on the stimulus uh, of exposure, depending on the signaling from uh, antigen-presenting cells, uh, depending on the overall immune system. They can be skewed towards the Th1, Th2, now we have the Th17, i.e. psoriasis, we have a Th9, and all those flavors of T helper cells, they secrete a different cytokine profile and will uh, result in a different clinical expression. And that's why there are so many phases of mycosis fungoides. We talk about the poikilodermatous presentation as the prototype, but you may find patients who present with, uh, uh, like, postular presentation like this one. And you know most people will not think of mycosis fungoides here. But this is clearly uh, ill-defined patches with a postular component. There are postular, there are neutrophilic rich uh, variants of mycosis fungoides. Look at these patients with very thick, uh, this micaceous scale, the intergluteal fold involvement, very typical of, of psoriasis. 
a little more asymmetrical, if you will, but clinically, uh, uh, any of those like single lesions may resemble closely psoriasis. Even microscopically, some of those cases, at low power, they look like psoriasis. And not until we go high power, not until we look carefully, we will find the tumor cells. At the opposite end of the spectrum, some patients very much like lichenoid, a very thin epidermis, uh, very poikilodermatous uh, presentation. You can have uh, hyperpigmentation, you can have hypopigmentation. The hypo hyperpigmentation is often due to melanoderma or pigment drop into the dermis, but in some cases it's due to hemosiderin deposit, like this case here. So you can have patients presenting with mycosis fungoides resembling a pigmented purpura, uh, purpura or Schamberg's or lichen aureus. When do we suspect uh, pigmented purpura-like mycosis fungoides? When the process is very extensive. If the patient has one single annular lesion or two or three or a few, usually it's not a problem. But when there's extensive involvement of those patches with this like golden hue, uh, you must biopsy, you must uh, look for uh, suspect mycosis uh, fungoides. In a young uh, patients with dark complexion, uh, the most common presentation is what's called the hypopigmented mycosis fungoides, a juvenile mycosis fungoides, uh, a junctional uh, CD8 mycosis fungoides. Those cases have a typical histological finding where the tumor cells are mostly along the dermal epidermal uh, junction and they are characteristically CD8 positive, an unusual phenotype of mycosis fungoides, which is for the most part CD3 positive, which is the T cell marker, CD4 positive, T helper, and CD7 negative. So those are the three markers that uh, most uh, precisely define mycosis fungoides. So to further complicate the issue, so I've shown you how MF can present with a thousand faces. So reactive dermatosis can also mimic, can also be misdiagnosed as CTCL. So, uh, at my cutaneous lymphoma clinic uh, at Northwestern, um, we see uh, every week uh, like two or three new patients. And my first, my first uh, uh, duty there is to make sure we are, not leaving, uh, um, we are not missing one of those reactive dermatoses. So I've seen patients presenting with, uh, can anybody tell me what's going on here? This is not MF. This patient has morphia especially the patients who have morphia with an overlap with lichen sclerosis, clinically can look very much like mycosis fungoides. And furthermore, microscopically, you may find a few scattered lymphocytes along the dermal epidermal junction that can be misinterpreted as mycosis fungoides. Those two patients had lupus, more like chronic uh, discoid or uh, subacute cutaneous, and this patient had what's called actinic reticuloid or chronic actinic dermatitis, uh, an eczematous uh, photodermatitis, which is characterized microscopically by the presence of abnormal T cells. So patients with actinic reticuloid often, uh, when biopsied, uh, may be, uh, may be uh, if not uh, directly called mycosis fungoides, they may be called uh, um, chronic lymphocytic dermatitis with a typical T cell, so you must uh, entertain the possibility of, of mycosis fungoides. So be aware of all those benign conditions that 
could mimic uh, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Another variant that you should be aware of is what's called the folliculotropic or a pilotropic uh, mycosis fungoides. Uh, those patients uh, are characterized by the, by the presence of uh, tumor cells, T helper cells, also infiltrating primarily the hair follicle. So they do not go along the dermal epidermal junction, but just at the follicle. So that's why the clinical presentation is completely different than conventional mycosis fungoides. They go where the follicular units are. The highest density of pilosebaceous units is in the head and neck area. Therefore, those patients are going to have lots of involvement in the head and neck, which, as you know, is not a common site for conventional mycosis fungoides. So completely different clinical presentation. Those patients present with uh, alopecia. Uh, pruritus is very severe. Uh, microscopically, we see lots of eosinophils. Even on the blood, we may find eosinophils, a cell type that we do not see in early mycosis fungoides. Eosinophils could be seen in advance, but in early MF are extremely uncommon. So what's important to remember about uh, folliculotropic mycosis fungoides? Different body distribution, the pruritus, the eosinophils, alopecia, and, uh, also, and most important that it has a, a poor prognosis. The prognosis is even worse than tumor stage mycosis fungoides. We don't know exactly why, but one of the lesions may be that folliculotropic MF does not respond well to uh, topical uh, uh, creams, does not uh, respond well to skin-directed uh, therapies. Again, because the tumor cells are down into the follicle, creams, phototherapy, unless you use PUVA, unless you use electron beam, are not going to reach where the cancer cells are. So we uh, have uh, found that folliculotropic, the same way that conventional MF can mimic any benign condition of this inflammatory condition of the skin, Folliculotropic MF can also imitate the pathology of the hair follicle from alopecia to folliculitis. So here's an example of a patient that looks with uh, what, look, what resembles like a, a cicatricial uh, alopecia, uh, probably clinically and pathologically. And here the, the, the skin biopsy shows destruction of the follicular units. And in some of the follicles, we see all these uh, edematous material, that's what's called follicular mucinosis. Often patients with folliculotropic mycosis fungoides, they have this mucinous destruction of the follicle, which is called follicular mucinosis. Now, young patients often have localized lesions of follicular mucinosis, which is an idiopathic, entirely uh, benign condition. But if you receive a biopsy uh, reported as follicular mucinosis, the process is extensive and especially is accompanied by alopecia. Be aware that this may not be plain and simple follicular mucinosis, but rather the folliculotropic variant of mycosis fungoides. Folliculotropic mycosis fungoides may resemble uh, alopecia areata, like this patient presented with what looks like ophiasis, but notice how in the uh, in the intraepidermal compartment, there are also lots of tumor cells, and the patient did have other patches which were more typical conventional mycosis fungoides. Another patient presenting with an entirely different presentation, uh, this more like lichen spinulosus or like 
um, milia or like cystic changes. Uh, initially was diagnosed as, a, as an acneiform eruption, but was an adult, was very pruritic. And the, the key uh, clinical finding here is the presence of uh, alopecia. Often uh, patients with folliculotropic alo uh, mycosis fungoides, they have hair loss involving the eyebrows. Uh, another unusual, even more unusual variant is what we call syringotropic uh, or palmoplantar uh, variants of mycosis fungoides. In syringotropic mycosis fungoides, the tumor cells are mostly clustered around the eccrine unit. Syringotropic mycosis fungoides often presents with this what we call a punctate erythema, which could be in palms and salts, could be anywhere. And very frequently, patients with uh, syringotropic changes also have folliculotropic changes. So all anexa, the sweat glands, and the hair follicle may be involved in some of those patients. And this is the biopsy showing the infiltrate mostly around the eccrine uh, coil. All right, so if we go down uh, the classification of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, uh, we've talked about the conventional MF, we've talked about folliculotropic MF, and then there are uh, what's called pagetorial reticulosis, granulomatosis, lung skin, very unusual. I guarantee you, you are, you're not gonna see those patients. I've seen like one or two cases in 20 years uh, um, seeing patients with MF. They present with those like uh, uh, exuberant folds in, in intertriginous areas. Microscopically, they present with what looks like a granulomatous process with large multinucleated giant cells with fragments of elastic fiber. So there is destruction of the elastic fiber network, which gives this, all this redundant slack appearance to the skin. Uh, what we see often is this intertriginous presentation of MF, uh, which microscopically also shows intertriginous uh, abnormal cells, but if they are treated promptly, they never develop the granulomatous pattern, they never develop the, this slack skin uh, presentation. This is pagetoid reticulosis. This is probably the most extreme case of pagetoid reticulosis I've seen. Be aware of pagetoid reticulosis because often those patients are young, Often those patients present with single lesions, and the lesions are acral, involving uh, uh, hands and feet, and they can resemble a ward. They are very, extremely verrucous looking. So if you have a ward that's not responding well to therapy, that's developing new satellite lesions, take a sample to make sure you are not missing pagetoid reticulosis. Uh, at low power, it's gonna look like a ward with all those uh, verrucous projections, but then when you go high power, you identify the tumor cells. Uh, the tumor cells happen to be CD8 positive, which is also a common finding of most of the cutaneous T-cell lymphomas with this high uh, pagetoid or intrapidermal uh, pattern. The prognosis in general is good and they respond well to, um, to uh, electron beam uh, or, uh, or surgery. All right, so uh, we've talked about T1, which is less than 10% body surface area. T2, more than 10% body surface area. T3, tumor uh, lesions. T4 is uh, generalized erythroderma involving more than 90% of the body surface area. Uh, CTCL is one of the most common uh, diagnoses in patients with generalized uh, exfoliative erythroderma. 
if you see a patient presenting with this type of erythema, with uh, this ectropion, uh, often they have a very bad palmoplantar fissuring uh, and scaliness, you must think of CTCL. You need to take a biopsy. Keep in mind that if the patients have Cesare syndrome, which is the leukemic variant of CTCL, the, the money is on the blood. So you may do a biopsy. The biopsies are often reported as spongiotic dermatitis. They may, you may even find the eosinophils, which may suggest an atopic process, yet the abnormal cells are on the blood. So send blood for peripheral blood smear evaluation by hematopathologists. If your institution has uh, good hematopathologists, they should look for, uh, for a Cesare count. If you do not have access to uh, hematopathology, send the blood for flow cytometry. Flow cytometry will identify an abnormal T-cell population with a high CD4, CD8 ratio and deletion of T-cell markers like CD7 and CD26. So erythroderma in CTCL could be a leukemic process, what we call Cesare syndrome, or could be plain and simple erythrodermic MF, which is extensive skin involvement without, uh, without blood involvement. Uh, obviously, in African-American patients, it's more difficult to identify erythroderma. This patient had massive adenopathy, which is an important clue that we are dealing with a lymphoma. You know the differential diagnosis of generalized erythroderma. You have to make sure the patients don't have other, uh, other conditions like psoriasis, HIV, atopy, seborrhea, pityriasis, rubra pilaris. You obviously go, or, or like a, a severe drug eruption, you go through the differential diagnosis of, of erythroderma, then you take your biopsies, you always examine the blood carefully, but once you find this type of massive adenopathy, uh, you can be certain you are dealing with, uh, with CTCL. So uh, Cesare syndrome, uh, the leukemic variant of CTCL, uh, those are the Cesare cells, highly cerebriform, uh, lim uh, large lymphocytes that we see in the peripheral blood. Those patients are miserable. Pruritus is a huge problem. Uh, we now know that those, uh, uh, the, the cells express some markers which are unique for Cesare syndrome. There are certain, uh, so Cesare syndrome is not just the leukemic variant of mycosis fungoides. We now know that there are certain molecular markers that are unique of Cesare syndrome and are rarely seen in mycosis fungoides. Remember that the skin biopsies are often nonspecific. You also should check HTLV-1, a retrovirus which can uh, produce a lymphoma leukemia which very, uh, closely resembles clinically and microscopically Cesare syndrome. HTLV-1, a virus common in Asia, common in people who have lived in the Caribbean, sometimes post-transfusion, presents with erythroderma, presents with uh, high leukemic cells in the peripheral blood, which very closely resemble uh, Cesare syndrome. There are also CD4 uh, T cells. So uh, B2 will be when the patients have more than 1,000 cells. That's what we are looking for. And again, if you have no access to uh, hematopathologists to review the morphology of those cells, send for flow cytometry, which will identify this abnormal phenotype with a very high CD4 to CD8 uh, ratio. This is a patient who had mycosis fungoides for a long time and now uh, was referred to us 
is the patient progressing to uh, Cesare syndrome? So any clues of what could be happening to this patient? So an, an, uh, an interesting observation clinically is that all those folds are spared. This patient was, uh, had mycosis fungoides, was on phototherapy and ha had a burn, a very severe burn. And, you know, so this may be a, a complete, erythroderma may be a complication of the treatment. So the patient was like freaking out. The doctor called me, I think my patient is developing Cesare syndrome. This is just simply a severe burn. The opposite thing may happen also, what we call the, the sanctuary effect. This patient is on phototherapy, and the sites which are not exposed to sun are the only areas where you find tumor lesions. Usually that's a, an impending sign of a tumor progression. Those patients in general, they do not respond well. So what, uh, what's the standard workup once you are thinking of mycosis fungoides? Do a biopsy. Uh, remember that you may have to do multiple biopsies. Remember that you, if you suspect mycosis fungoides, it's very common that the first few times uh, is going to be missed. You may uh, have to follow them a few times, and eventually the biopsy may yield positive results. Don't be shy. If there is different morphology from side to side, you may want to take more than one biopsy. Request immunohistochemistry. Remember those high CD4, CD8 ratios, depletion of CD7 are very important. And also send tissue for T cell receptor gene rearrangement. The presence of a clone is confirmatory, uh, not, not in all the cases, but is important to support your clinical and pathological impression of a lymphoma. In terms of peripheral blood, we do CBC, comprehensive chemical panel, serum LDH, to all the patients. If the patients have more extensive disease, we may also send the blood for Cesare count, for gene rearrangement, flow cytometry, and then is when we do further studies like the PET CT scans, lymph node biopsies if they have massive adenopathy, but there is no need for bone marrow biopsy. That's not part of our workup unless there is uh, other clinical indications, like for, for instance, severe, severe cytopenias, which may indicate that the bone marrow is, uh, is uh, replaced by tumor cells. Highly, highly uncommon. All right, so that's all about the clinical presentation of CTCL. Let's talk a little bit about, about treatment. This, those are the survival curves of uh, mycosis fungoides based on stage. Notice how Patients with, there is a big difference between T1, oh, excuse me, between T1, which is again less than 10% body surface area, those patients in general, they do not die of lymphomas unless you are just seeing the tip of the iceberg at the very early presentation. Once the patients have more than, uh, than focal involvement, the survival curve gets worse and worse all the way down to level four with an average survival of about two years. Early stages of mycosis fungoides 1A, 1B, up to 2A are treated in general by dermatologists. We do not need the help of the oncologist until we reach the more advanced uh, stage. So what do we do for patients with localized disease? Emollients, uh, corticosteroids work well early on. We use a lot of nitrogen mustard. 
carbamustin we rarely use anymore, phototherapy, excimer laser, the only ones which are FDA approved for the treatment of mycosis fungoides are vexerotin gel, also called a targretin gel, and mostergen gel, which has been recently available as, uh, with the name of Valclor. Both of them are extremely expensive. Uh, Bexerotin gel, targretin gel, was recently acquired by, I think it's a, a Valorant, and the one single tube cost uh, upwards to like $4,000. $4,000 for a 60 gram tube. I mean, I have a hard time prescribing a cream. If I knew that the cream is gonna cure the patient, is one thing, but we know it's not gonna cure the patient. It may help the patient, so it's hard to justify those high cost, uh, costs. And we are now doing some clinical trials with uh, other treatment modalities. So uh, topical corticosteroids work well. We use uh, potent uh, corticosteroids, class one or class two. High response rate, especially on patients with T1. Works well for patch lesions. Once you have thick plaques or tumors, they do not work well. You have to apply vigorously to the lesions, go a little beyond the lesion, because we know if you biopsy beyond the patch, you also find tumor cells. And most important, once you get a good response, do not stop the treatment, but slowly taper the frequency of application. Go down to a, to a less potent class and decrease the frequency of application. Nitrogen master, again, the Valclor is now FDA uh, approved. It works well with an overall response rate uh, close to 70%. Uh, the problem with um, nitrogen master is number one, that's a slow acting. Uh, median time to response can be up to uh, uh, one year, so you need to prepare the patient that the response is slow. And also contact dermatitis, especially allergic contact dermatitis are common. About 50% of the patients uh, uh, can have them. Uh, with the new Valclor is probably close to 50%. That uh, the presence of a contact dermatitis does not preclude from the treatment. We have observed patients who have horrendous contact dermatitis uh, just to completely resolve after they have those severe reactions. So to uh, offset a bit the uh, incidence of irritation, we often combine uh, mostergen with topical steroids. That allows for the use of less of the chemotherapy. Remember, uh, mechlorethamine or, or, or uh, nitrogen mustard is an alkylating agent. Uh, so you can get the best or a similar results with less use by alternating maybe every other day the nitrogen mustard and the, and the cortisone uh, creams. There's not much literature about that, but that's we do. That's one of the one of the tricks we use at our cutaneous lymphoma clinic. So, pretty much faster results with fewer uh, evidence of, of dermatitis. In terms of uh, of side effects. Uh, there is no evidence that nitrogen mustard increases the risk of uh, non melanoma or non-melanoma skin cancer. We know that CTCL patients are more prone to develop a skin cancer regardless. Uh, they have uh, not only skin cancer, but they have higher incidence of colon, lung, and other, other malignancies. And they often have had other skin-directed therapies like phototherapy. So uh, by itself, Nitrogen masterson does not appear to be carcinogenic to the skin. The most common side effects are number one, 
the, um, the irritation in about close to 50% of the patients. Number two, the presence of hyperpigmentation, as you can see here, which can be very long-lasting. Topical retinoids, uh, as I mentioned, they are expensive, $4,000 for the targretin gel. Uh, you can use also uh, tazerotin, also irritating, also expensive. Often what we find is this is a patient baseline who used targretin and had this what we call creeping eruption. So you need to aware, make them aware that uh, you may have redness expanding beyond the actual lesion. So be careful to not keep applying more and more because you, you may end up with, uh, with erythroderma. So in general, when I prescribe retinoids or nitrogen mustard, I always give them at least a medium potency uh, steroid cream to uh, offset the irritating effect of those uh, treatments. Patients with extensive uh, skin disease, they have now more than 10% of the body surface area. You must treat the entire skin. Even if you take a sample from normal appearing skin, you are likely to identify the tumor cells there. So the options from the most, most uh, aggressive to the least aggressive uh, skin-directed therapies, uh, total skin, skin electron beam, which is only offered at a few places in the United States, PUVA, UVA combined with sorolens, which is not offered very commonly, often with a combination of interferon, narrowband UVB, meclorethamine, uh, emollients, and steroids. So we use a lot of narrowband UVB at Northwestern. It's probably the most effective form of therapy for early stages uh, mycosis fungoides. We know that phototherapy, both narrowband UVB and PUVA, work better when they are combined with a low-dose uh, retinoid, so we often combine it with targretin or acetretin. We get pretty much the same result, but much faster with fewer, uh, with fewer sessions or fewer cumulative uh, joules. So new trends on phototherapy. Uh, for many years, uh, sorolens was not available. Finally, ultrasorolens is now available. Uh, the problem being is that very few dermatologists have, any, have PUVA booths at their offices. I'm just curious to know how many of you have PUVA facilities at your office? One, two, three, four. So again, most people, um, most dermatologists years ago had both UVA, UVB. With the advent of narrowband UVB, which is almost as effective and fewer side effects, Many people got rid of their UVA, so now that we have the Sorolens bags, unfortunately, many people do not have the booth. So we now have this new UVA-1 light available, which works well without the need of oral Sorolens. Sometimes we use excimer lasers uh, uh, for, for dynamic therapy, very, very seldom. And there is more new literature combining PUVA with other systemic uh, treatments like extracorporeal phosphoresis. Uh, um, interferons and, and retinoids. Cutaneous T cell lymphoma is highly sensitive to uh, radiation therapy, as you can see here. Um, we use radiation for con conditioning before an allotransplant. Uh, in, up until recently, the standard treatment of any lymphomas, whether they were B cells or T cells, was to go uh, full dose, 36 uh, rays, which is a fractionated process that can take over a month. Now at Northwestern, we are finding out that even a single fraction 
uh, low-dose um, uh, electron beam can do very, very well. So we published recently our data uh, with just about four or five grays, uh, one or two fractions, extremely good results without the need of all the complications of uh, chronic uh, radiation uh, therapy. All right, so we talk about all the spectrum of skin-directed therapies. There is a lot to offer to our patients. Once they, you reach a point that the lesions are thick, once you reach a point that there is folliculotropism, tumor development, adenopathy, you need uh, the help of an oncologist. What's available out, out there in terms of systemic therapies? The ones approved are Bexerotin, uh, which is the oral targretin, uh, Romidepsin, and Vorinostat or Zolinza. Those two are histone deacetylase inhibitors. One is oral Zolinza, the other one is IV. Uh, those are the three only approved uh, ones, but there are many other treatments that we use much more frequently. I'm not going to go in detail to all the systemic therapies, but sufficing to say that those are all palliative. Is not, so you need to know that it's palliative, not curative. So once we get a good result, you need to maintain the remission by doing some other form of, of skin-directed therapy. So we prolong the good results by providing maybe uh, nitrogen-mastered fluorotherapy or oral retinoids in between chemotherapy and chemotherapy. So uh, quality of life obviously is very important. Again, pruritus is a, is a huge problem and systemic therapy is going to help. And again, those maintenance protocols are becoming very important in the treatment of CTCL. Just to mention the most effective chemotherapies that we use for debulking patients who present with this type of uh, tumor lesions, they are not obviously going to respond to any form of skin-directed therapy. So we use uh, doxyl or pegylated doxorubicin with good results, uh, gemzyrbine, a purine analog, pralotrexate, brentuximab, which is a CD30 uh, fusion protein, uh, romidepsin, again, uh, histone deacetylate inhibitors are becoming very important in the treatment of CTCL, not only IV and oral, but now we are also experimenting with uh, topical creams that are HD, HDAC-based. Uh, and finally, combination uh, chemotherapy, which can work especially with aggressive uh, lymphomas. In general, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma progresses in the skin. So patient goes to the patch plaque, tumor lesion development, but sometimes the patients are doing very well, and that happens often in people who are on oral retinoids, and the, 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 the systemic progression may be in, uh, internal. So they may have perfectly clear skin, yet you have to feel for those nodes because this may be where the money is. So patients with CTCL, regardless of what happens to the skin, always feel the lymph nodes. So we mentioned how... Uh, how uh, histone uh, acetylation is very important for transcription. We now know that inhibiting this pathway is becoming very important. So uh, again, the ones approved right now, Zolinza orally does not work very well. Patients have horrible side effects like nausea. We never use this Vorinostat. Romidepsin IV works very well. We use it all the time. And again, now working on the topical forms. So you are going to see patients with Cesare syndrome, erythroderma, pruritus is a huge problem. You can not give them enough uh, topical uh, treatments of corticosteroids or, uh, or antihistamines to treat this because they do not respond very well. 
you have to be careful for in infections, uh, central lines. They have those problems with I, 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 um, uh, um, ectropion, which can result in, in deafness. There are many other issues. Often the patients with erythroderma also have uh, tinea, so we often give them antifungal, debridement of all those keratotic lesions of the palms and soles. Again, pruritus is a huge problem, especially so in advanced Caesarean uh, syndrome. So what can we do for pruritus relief? You must treat the disease. If you uh, are dealing with a systemic problem, send the patient to an oncologist or send the patient to a clinic like ours where we do a multi-specialty approach to the disease. Topical steroids, antihistamines do not help. Emollients, proper, uh, proper skin care. Reduce the bacterial colonization is very important with soaks with, uh, or wraps with uh, Clorox baths, uh, Dakin solution, Dumboros, antibiotics, antifungals uh, as needed. And then we have uh, little tricks like uh, gabapentin, uh, Lyrica, Prepitant, but all those uh, very expensive uh, treatment modalities like a Prepitant is super expensive, in reality do not work very well. We know that as the patient advances to Caesarean syndrome, there is the depletion of the normal T-cell repertoire to the point that patients with advanced Caesarean syndrome are immune suppressed. They are very prone to develop staph aureus infections. They are often colonized, frequently infected. You must be very watchful of those infections. Those infections, they also aggravate the lymphoma uh, for patients with Caesarean syndrome, what works the best is uh, uh, extracorporeal phoroforesis, where we extract the cells, we separate uh, the white cells from the rest of the cells, and in a way, you, it's like a puva, but just directed on a thin film of, of the buffy coat of the peripheral blood, and there is an immunogenic response that helps fight the cancer cells. So, in a way, extracorporeal phoroforesis is like puva, but for the blood rather than for the skin. Uh, Romidepstin, as I mentioned earlier, works very well. And alentuzumab, which is Campath, extremely well, the problem being that now is not available. And finally, for patients with CTCL, we use a lot of, uh, of uh, transplant. So transplant, and now we are using um, uh, reduced intensity. Um, uh, with chemotherapy follow with the transplant. Often they have recurrence, but the recurrence is less severe. Uh, the response rate is high, but you pay, you pay the high price of there is a, a mortality of close to one third of the patients. If the patients are able to get a much related donor, they do much better than if it's an unrelated donor. So you have to uh, weigh the pros and cons, but people who have uh, advanced disease like this patient Pretty much the only option for a long uh, remission or even a cure is, uh, is, uh, is with the transplant. This is a patient actually who I've been following for about 10 years, is still doing very, very well. Um, so we talk about that. And then there are many other treatment options um, that we are experimenting to, but I'm not going to go. So we are targeting surface receptors. We are targeting the microenvironment uh, with those proteasome inhibitors like uh, alenalidomide or uh, immune response, trying to boost the immune response of the patient against the cancer cells. 
Let's talk about CD30 lymphomatoid papillosis. You are going to see those patients presenting with those clusters of papules that come and go. Uh, they look like red papules, they become hemorrhagic and necrotic, and eventually they resolve with one of what we call like a pox-like scar. They often uh, are uh, in clusters. They may overlap with mycosis fungoides with this background of erythroderma. Some patients have large tumor lesions, we call those like borderline type C lymphomatoid papillosis, or if they are more than one, one and a half centimeters, we call them anaplastic large cell lymphoma. Keep in mind that those patients are more prone to develop other lymphomas, especially mycosis fungoides, but even internal lymphomas, so that's important to keep in mind. In terms of therapy, we do not have a cure for lymphomatoid papillosis. We have treatments that control the disease. What works the best is methotrexate, but we are not curing the disease. For those cases which are large borderline cases or anaplastic large cell lymphomas, radiation or surgical excision are the treatments of choice. Then there is all those uh, unusual lymphomas that are extremely rare and most likely you will not be exposed to. One of them is what's called natural killer T-cell lymphoma. That's caused by a virus, uh, Epstein-Barr virus, which can involve the nasal nasopharynx, or what we also call uh, lethal midline granuloma, or can be other sites without nasal involvement, but typically presenting with those hemorrhagic necrotic uh, lesions, most common in uh, Southeast Asia or Latin America. Microscopically, we see destruction of the blood vessels. Um, so there's a vasculitis within the biopsy, very severe, uh, very aggressive disease, uh, very poor survival, less than one year, unless we do the only treatment option we have, which is, uh, which is an allotransplant. There are some chemotherapies that work somewhat, like allospurginase, but very, very poor prognosis. Now, young women uh, may present with what's called a panic paniculitic-like, subcutaneous paniculitic-like T-cell lymphoma. Often those patients have a, a, an autoimmune diathesis. They often have a positive ANA. <coughs> they often present with constitutional symptoms. And in general, they do well with the exception of the patients who develop a hemophagocytic syndrome. So we have good treatment options. So they may present with what looks like erythema nodosum. Uh, this was a patient who had dermatomyositis and those really tender, deep nodules on the skin and microscopically shows those typical malignant cells around the lipocytes in the subcutaneous tissues. They are always CD8 positive, those markers. Um, even more unusual than the paniculitic lymphoma is what's called gamma-delta lymphomas. Those patients may present with patches or plaques or paniculitic lesions, which over time become ulcerated, uh, hemorrhagic like this patient here. Patients with gamma-delta lymphomas have a very poor prognosis, often signs of necrosis under the microscope. This was a patient with a paniculitic presentation that also became ulcerated. So the, what's, what's called paniculitic T-cell lymphoma does not undergo ulceration. The patients do relatively well. If you have a patient with a paniculitic lymphoma that becomes ulcerated, most likely, almost for sure, is a gamma-delta lymphoma, and those have a very poor prognosis. Finally, just a few words on uh, cutaneous B-cell lymphomas. Uh, again, approximately 30% of, of cutaneous uh, lymphomas. The most common one is probably what's called marginal zone lymphomas. can be at, seen at any age, but often younger patients in the extremities, 
excellent prognosis. Patients with this condition do not die of the lymphomas. We, know, we now know that they have often comorbidities, especially autoimmunity. They often have thyroid problems, Jogren's. They have uh, GI problems, uh, infections, and other malignancies. Um, and we, we have to look for periproteinemias because those are, are, are malignancies characterized by many plasma cells which are monoclonal. Typically, marginal zone lymphoma presents in the extremities with papules or, or clusters of cells uh, or clusters of, of papules, often also uh, close to follicular units. And microscopically, as I mentioned, they are characterized by B cells with this plasmacytic differentiation, as you can see towards the periphery of this nodule. And microscopically, we'll find restriction of one of the light chains. So they are kappa uh, positive, lambda negative. So much more positive for kappa than, than uh, lambda with a high, a high ratio. Follicle center cell lymphoma is also indolent. This one is in, in, uh, more common in elderly patients, uh, head and neck, torso. Um, usually they do not have systemic involvement. Uh, the course is very good but not as good as the marginal zone lymphoma with approximately 95% five, uh, a little more than 95% five-year survival. If the patients have very extensive disease, you have to uh, make sure you are not dealing with a systemic uh, lymphoma. So uh, those patients often need uh, a bone marrow biopsy when they have extensive uh, in involvement. And finally, there, is this there are very unusual B-cell lymphoma, what's called the leg type. Usually elderly woman presenting with uh, chronic lymphedema and ulcerated tumor in the lower extremities. Uh, this is uh, aggressive, uh, large cell lymphoma uh, with a five-year survival, 40, about uh, 40 to 50%. Uh, so in general, they don't do very well, those patients. And an extremely unusual presentation, which is the intravascular B-cell lymphoma. Those patients present with those almost like purpuric lesions. They often have CNS involvement, so, so they come with mental status uh, changes. There was a patient also with those like bruise-like lesions. Interestingly, when you biopsy even what looks like a cherry hemangioma, this patient we biopsied is like a cherry hemangioma and showed it was like completely filled of tumor cells inside the, the blood vessels. So what's the workup and therapy for cutaneous B-cell lymphomas? We do pretty much the same workup, LDH, chemical panel, PET CT scan. If abnormal, we may consider bone marrow biopsy. Remember I told you for T-cell lymphomas, we do not do bone marrow biopsies. For B-cell, uh, we often do them, especially if the, PT, uh, if, the, if the PET CT scans are abnormal. Look for, uh, for a prayer protein if, if you have one of those marginal zone or plasma cell rich infiltrate. Uh, marginal cell lymphomas are extremely indolent. Observation is fine. Intralesional canalogs, excision, electron beam radiation. Very seldom on B-cell lymphomas we use rituximab. So patients with extensive follicle center cell lymphoma, we will treat them with uh, CHOP with rituximab unless it's very localized where we do uh, localized radiation. And for patients with these aggressive large cell type lymphomas like the leg type, we need polychemotherapy with rituximab too. And I think that's all I have for you. I thank you all for your attention. And if you have any questions, I'll be happy to entertain them. Thank you very much.